Well, thank you, Dan and Kristen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. We're going to consider a very, uh, I guess, famous passage of Scripture uh, in just a moment. Uh, I just kind of wondered, I got to thinking about this this week, where, where do famous names come from? I mean, how do you come up with a, with a famous name or a, a name that turns out to be famous? I read a really interesting story uh, by a guy named John uh, Colapinto. But in 1998, a group of executives from an organization called Research in Motion showed up at a place in California, uh, a company called Lexicon. And uh, this firm, Lexicon, was devoted to creating names for products. And so the, the executives for, from RIM, they showed up, they had this little device. Uh, and this device was a two-way pager, and, and you could send and receive emails wirelessly. And it was unheard of at that particular time. And they wanted a name for it, and they thought about, hey, we could call it Mega Mail, or we could call it Pro Mail, or we could call it Easy Mail. But the problem was when Lexicon began to do the research, when, when, you talk, when they talked to people about getting email, that was kind of frowned upon. In fact, people didn't want to get email wherever they were, whenever they could. Imagine, can you imagine that? And, and so, in, in fact, what they discovered is that for some people, the idea of getting email wirelessly made their blood pressure go up. And so they were kind of challenged. So they start, so, so Lexicon starts off uh, trying to figure out a name for this product. And they, uh, they, they created what they call a mind map. And that's where you, you got a kind of a big chalkboard or a big whiteboard. And you go and you just start writing words down. And, and, and then you start, you build these word trees. And, and in a matter of just a few minutes, uh, evidently, they, they come up with hundreds of words. And they started looking for things, uh, words that maybe were natural. And they would write down and words that, that were fresh, and they would write them down, and words that were fun, and they wrote them down. And so they got hundreds of words, and at some point they started looking, they, st- they thought, well, we need, some, we need some words that are enjoyable. And so they started writing some words that were enjoyable, and, and somebody goes, goes up and they write down the word strawberry. And, uh, and they got to thinking, strawberry sounds enjoyable, but it, but it sounded kind of slow. In fact, the, the founder of the company kind of sounds it out and goes, strawberry. He said, you know, this is slow, and, and, and this device is, is supposed to be quick. And then somebody goes up, and they write the name Blackberry. And the founder says, uh, you know, they got to looking at these words, and, and finally, they narrowed them down to 40. And in the 40 words they took to research in motion was that little word, Blackberry. And after months of deliberation, they, they kind of settled on the word Blackberry. They decided that the, the strengths of it were that, you know, the device was going to be black, and that kind of sounded professional. And it had these little buttons. In fact, if you can get that screen up here, the little buttons look like little, little, those little drop, droplets or whatever you call it of a blackberry. And then they discovered in their research uh, a couple years earlier, the letter B was really popular in, in, in every language. And so linguistically, it was good. And so, uh, so they decided to capitalize both of them. 
And in January of 1999, the BlackBerry was launched. How many of you had a BlackBerry? Anybody in here? Okay. Uh, a few of us had a BlackBerry. Uh, but despite the competition, as of 2011, there were still 70 million users worldwide. Now, so according to this article, that's how the BlackBerry got its name. The precursor to the smartphone got its name BlackBerry. Now, when I read that, I thought that's a great story. But you know something? The name BlackBerry really, you know, it doesn't really tell you anything, right? It's just a name. But there are some names that really tell you something. Remember when the angel appeared to, to Joseph? It's recorded in Matthew chapter 1. And, and the angel says, your wife-to-be is with child. This is my translation, by the way. Your wife-to-be is with child. She's going to have a son, and you're going to give him the name what? Jesus. Why? Because he would what? He would save his people from their sin. There are some names that mean something. The name of Jesus means something. 750 years before that, or roughly 750 years before that, the prophet Isaiah gave us some names about Jesus. And so we're going to look at that. So if you have your Bibles there, we're going to look in, in, in the, 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 the book of Isaiah. In fact, I was, I was listening to somebody this week and, uh, or, or reading. I think I was listening or reading. But anyway, and they talked about the gospel according to Isaiah. Now, we don't think of Isaiah as the gospel. Uh, but but, but did, you know, did you know the name Isaiah is almost synonymous with the name Joshua, which is almost synonymous with the name Yeshua? the Hebrew name, which is really synonymous with the name Jesus. In fact, the, the name Isaiah uh, means uh, God is salvation or salvation is from the Lord. And so really that's what, when you look at Isaiah, that, that's really what this is about. And so listen to what he says concerning the Christ child. Isaiah chapter 9, look with me, beginning in verse 1. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide this fall. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you pray with me? Father, as we 
look into this text and as we seek to unpack uh, this passage of scripture this morning, as we look at the, some of the names of Jesus, obviously not all of them, God, they really do mean something. They, didn't, they weren't created on a whiteboard uh, with mind maps by a bunch of men and women gathered in a room. These names have significance. And Father, I pray that as we unpack them this morning, as we look into them, that you would use them to encourage our hearts. Uh, God, they tell us so much about the ministry of Jesus uh, to his people. And God, I know this morning uh, there are those in the auditorium uh, who need to be ministered to. Uh, there are those of us who need counsel. There are those of us who need you to, to act in a mighty way. There, there are those of us who, who, who just need to experience your peace. And so, God, I pray that as we unpack this word, that you would speak into our life and into our hearts. And God, for the man, for the woman, for the young person here this morning that may not yet know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray they would discover that he is, he is so much to them. He's king. He's counselor. He's father. And he's a prince. And he's the author of peace. So speak into their heart this morning is my prayer. Father, as, as, as we go through the message, Lord, I would just pray that you bring to mind every word that you want me to say. Uh, Father, I would forget those things that are not relevant to today. God, that you would hide me behind the cross, that I wouldn't speak according to my wisdom or according to men's wisdom, but Father, rather and only in demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. So come and meet with us, and we'll give you the honor and the glory. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I, I thought this would be a great text for Christmas that, you know, for unto us a child is born and, and we would just work our way through this. And so I got into the text on Monday and began to study and begin to uh, learn and, you know, about it. And, and really, there, there's just some context here uh, that is significant. And it's really, you know, we probably should go back to chapter 18 and, and, and to get our hand on this. But, but what I want you to understand is that what Isaiah is doing is, is, is he's proclaiming or, or prophesying about the promised one, the Messiah. But, but to fully understand this, we got to understand that this passage is first and foremost a promise to Israel that there's going to be a Messiah who comes and who rules and reigns on the throne of David. Now, Jesus came, and we're celebrating that, and, and we're going to talk about that. But what you and I, what we need to, really, to fully understand this passage, we need to realize it's talking about Jesus and what it's predicting about Jesus and prophesying about Jesus, though it's, it, it's presented in past tense because it's prophecy, really hasn't happened yet. Jesus has yet to sit on the throne of David and rule and reign over the nation of Israel. And yet the scripture clearly teaches that that is going uh, to happen. If you notice down in verse 7, he, it says, Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. So Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David, but he hasn't done that yet. Now when he does that, he will... He will reign and rule as the wonderful counselor and as the mighty God and as the everlasting father and as the prince of peace. And yet today, if you're a follower of Jesus, he is all of that to you. But, but understand that this is, this is really uh, a passage about the millennium. 
It's really about what's going to happen. And let me just kind of, and if you're not sure about prophecy, let me just give you kind of a, a real quick timeline. As I understand it, being a, I'm a, I'm a, pre, a pre-trib premillennialist, and that's really theology. Let me just kind of tell you what that means. Uh, I, I believe that someday, maybe soon, Jesus is going to come and he's going to call the church. He's going to rapture the church, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 13 and following. That Jesus is going to snatch the church away. And when that happens, that's going to usher in a period of seven years called the Great Tribulation. You can read about that in the book of Daniel. You can read about it in Revelation and some other places. Seven years of tribulation in the middle of that. Uh, it's going to get pretty, uh, really ugly. Uh, well, at, the, at the conclusion of that seven years, Jesus, the second coming of Christ, Jesus is going to come. You can read about that in Revelation 19. And, and when he comes, he's going to judge the world and judge the earth. And then Jesus is going to set up the millennial thousand-year reign where he literally judges the world from Jerusalem and from uh, the throne of King David. And when that happens, during those thousand years, what's predicted here is what's going to take place. He's wonderful counselor. He's mighty God, everlasting father. And, and of his government and the increase of it and of the peace, there will be no end, it says, and so on the throne of David, over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Now watch this, from this time forth and forevermore. And so as a backdrop, understand that this promise is about what Jesus is going to do when he reigns on the throne of Israel. Now you say, well, what, a, I mean, did, I thought this was a Christmas and, you know, and all that. By, by the way, and, and I don't have time to, 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 let me just give you a sidebar. Uh, how many of you know the song, Joy to the World? Joy to the world, right. We, we'll probably sing it tonight when we go caroling. By the way, you need to come go caroling with us. You go, hey, it's cold. Well, that's okay. It's Christmas. It ought to be cold, right? I mean, tough it up. Let's go. We, we, need, to, we need to go out and, and, and spread some cheer. But we'll probably sing that song tonight. But we sing that song as a Christmas carol. But did you know that Joy to the World, it's really not a Christmas carol. It wasn't written for Christmas. It was written for the second coming. Just read those verses. And so, and so they, it's kind of a dual meaning. Now, you say, and so I say all that because I want you to get the context. While, while in the future that's going to happen, but what that, what that means to us today is the things that the character of Jesus then is true for us now. And so let me give you the characters. We'll talk about that real quickly, and we'll try to uh, put this in a package that you can understand. Let me just share with you four thoughts, because it says in verse 6, for unto us a child is born. In other words, in other words he writes as it's already happened, but this was 750 years in advance. But, but because it's prophecy, it's so certain, it's already guaranteed. But let, so, so he says, for unto us a child is born. The, that phrase, child is born, what that tells us, it speaks about Jesus' humanity. That's really what that speaks about. When he talks about for unto us a child is born. So the first characteristic of this coming Messiah, the one that came for us and the one that will rule on the throne, is, is his humanity. If you have your Bibles, turn with me over to Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, look with me at chapter 1, and we'll pick up in verse 32. Read a couple verses. This is the prophecy. This is what the angel says. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God, or the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob 
forever, and of his kingdom uh, there will be no end. And, and so um, that, is, that is significant. Now, go over to chapter 2, look at verse 11. See, that's the prediction, the prophecy. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Same, talking about the same thing. It says, for unto you is born this night or this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, isn't it, isn't it interesting that God is so unpredictable? And, and, and some would even say, Illogical. I mean, think about this. God is going to send a savior. God is going to send a Messiah that is going to rule over or rule on the throne and rule over Israel. And so this, God's going to send, in essence, God is sending a king. And, and rather than arrive in pomp and circumstance, he arrives in a stock barn. And he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. And he's laid in a manger, or actually laid in a feed trough. We use the term manger, but that's really what it is. I mean, his first bed, the scripture says, was a feed trough. Now, it doesn't sound near as good in the song, so we, we like manger, right? Can you imagine singing um, away in a feed trough? No crib for a bed. It just doesn't have, the, it doesn't have the same ring, does it? And so we sing away in a manger. But that's what, so think about this. God decided... That his only son, the king, the savior, the Messiah, would be born in a stockyard, in a cattle stall or, or maybe a sheep stall. And, and he, they would wrap him in swaddling clothes. Uh, and then they would lay him in this feed trough. And so God put his son in a tiny human body and sent him humbly to earth. Now, the, humanity is significant because Jesus had to be able to identify with us. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in all points as we are. Yet what? Yet was without sin. In other words, in his humanity, Jesus understands the temptation. Jesus understands the fear Jesus understands so many of the emotions that we go through. Why? Because he was human. And so we need to see his humanity. If you go back to Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verse 6, not only do we see his uh, humanity there, but it says also, um, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, at, 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 a, at a cursory reading of that, we would think, oh, that, that's, that's, that's not a big deal. The child was a son. But but the word, the phrase son really is a fulfillment that he is the son of God. In fact, if you'll turn back to Isaiah chapter 7, just, just turn the page to the left. Listen to verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now watch this. And shall call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean? We sing about it. What does the word Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. And so while the phrase, for unto us a child is born, speaks to his humanity, the phrase, a son is given, speaks to Jesus' deity. And so it's important 
that the Savior, the Messiah, be human so he could identify with us. But it's also important that he be deity, that he be God, so he could minister his grace and God's mercy and all of that to us. And we could go back to, uh, uh, again, to Luke uh, 1 and look at that. So, so we see his deity and we see his humanity. But I want, to, I want to point out a third character there. If you're still in verse 6 of chapter 9, notice the, the next phrase, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The idea there is his sovereignty. We've seen his humanity, his deity, his sovereignty. And, and what that means, I mean, he doesn't have a name yet, and yet what the, what the writer is saying, he's going to rule, he's going to be sovereign over not just the earth, but he's going to be sovereign over the kingdom. The government is going to rest on his shoulder. And, and so, so really what this is talking about is godly kingship. Now, we could go back to that passage. I think I read it earlier in Luke one twenty two, where it says that he's going to rule on David's throne. The idea is that, that Jesus is going to be ruler, that he's going to exercise sovereign authority over the whole earth. Now, here's a question. Is, is Jesus ruling the earth today? Is the government of the world resting on his shoulders today? Is, is that really happening? Is Jesus ruling? Is he sovereign over the earth today? Is he? Now, we know that he's king. We know that he's Lord. But is he ruling over the earth today? And the answer is it's no, not yet. I mean, he's in control of all things, but he's not sitting on a throne, on David's throne in Israel, exercising, governing the, the nations yet, though he will after the second coming. And, and yet the scripture says that he is sovereign. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, 18, before he gives the great mandate, the great mission, the great commission to go and make disciples, what does he say? He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he says, now I want you to go make disciples. And so the idea is that, that Jesus, he's sorry, and yet he's, he's not exercising full control over everything. Um, as we can see it, yet he is sovereign over the universe. He has authority over all things. He is ruler in, in the millennial. He will rule over the government as we know it. He's sovereign over that. He's Lord over the universe. But the question I want to ask this morning this sovereign Jesus that's going to reign over the nations, that this has all authority and all power, that's sovereign over the earth, is, is, is he ruler and sovereign over your life? See, he's the ruler of the universe. There's no question about that. We may not want to admit it. We may not want to acknowledge it, but it doesn't make it any less true. He's ruler of the universe. But is he ruler in my heart? And is he ruler in yours? That's a fair question. Because if he's king over the universe, he ought to be king over my heart and yours. Can I get a witness? Isn't that right? So is, is he 
ruler and sovereign. See, that's his sovereignty. We've looked at his humanity, his deity, his sovereignty. What I want to talk about is what I will call his identity. Really, if you look at the, the, the next part of, of, of verse 6, he gives us four descriptions, four names that, that give us a picture of the identity of this coming Messiah that is going to rule over uh, the Israel and on the throne of David, uh, but is also king of the universe. He is wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's everlasting father. He's prince of peace. And, and so the issue is that, that that's important there is that, uh, hey, God's names reveal who he is. Now, the, the name Blackberry doesn't really mean anything. It, it, it's just a name they gave to a device. Doesn't have any significance. But the names of Jesus have significance. Have you ever wondered why there are so many different names for God in the scriptures? I mean, there are so many. We, we know God as Elohim. We know God, which just means he's kind of sovereign over everything. We know God as El Elyon. Uh, we know God as Jehovah. We know him as Jehovah Jireh, which means God uh, will uh, provide. We know him as Jehovah Rapha, God who heals. And we know him as uh, Jehovah Mekadeshim, which means that God, uh, you know, sanctifies or sets apart. And we could just go on down the list of names. And then when you come to Jesus, man, he's the prince of peace. He's the bread of life. He's the water of life. He's the faithful and true witness. I mean, we got name after name after name after name. Now, now why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because one name can't describe him. In fact, there are probably not enough names to describe him. Because what God would do, the reason God has many names in the Old Testament is God would reveal himself in, in a new way and, they would, and they, would just, they would just call him something different. I mean, I, I, think about this. Abraham's up on the mountain. He goes up on the mountain with his son to offer Isaac, uh, you know, to sacrifice Isaac to God. He, he takes him up on the mountain and in obedience to God. He, he ties this teenager, this young man up. He puts him on the wood. He's about, he raises his hand to to literally to kill his son and the angel stops him and says, no, no, don't harm the boy. I know that you love me. And he looks up and looking right over there in the thicket is a, is a ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham says, Jehovah Jireh, brand new name. We know that is the Lord will provide. And, and so God kept revealing himself. And so what, when we, what we see in God's names is, is we see a revelation of his character. What we see in the names of Jesus are a revelation of his character. Now, the prophet gives us four, and let me just share those with us quickly. By the way, if your translation separates wonderful and counselor, and some of them do, I believe that is, that is really not a, a good separation. Uh, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Because notice the, the sense of the text. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. There, there's a symmetry there. And so we, we believe that's true. Now let's just talk about that for a minute. Uh, obviously, we probably know what counselor means. But the word wonderful um, really is, is a, in the Hebrew, the word is pele. And it, almost, without a, almost without exception, it refers to the wonder and the majesty of of God. It almost always means a miracle, a marvel, a marvelous thing, or something extraordinary, unusual, or astounding, which causes a sense of great amazement. And I mean, wonder was used to describe the miracles in Egypt, uh, the crossing of the sea. And so there's this sense of awe and wonder and majesty as it applies to Jesus 
as counselor. Now, obviously, as counselor, uh, it means that to counsel means to give advice to God, to plan, etc. So, so just think about it. Jesus is wonderful as a counselor. And the reason Jesus is wonderful as a counselor, think about this. He's always right. I mean, if, if, you've, ever had, if you've ever been to marriage counseling or if you've ever been to financial counseling or, if you've ever, or, or when you had to meet with a counselor when you were in college and they were trying to help you, give you some direction in life because we think about, hey, counsels to give advice, counsels to give guidance, uh, counsels to help make plans. So anytime you meet with somebody and they, they, they give us input, you never know if it's good or not, Right? You never know if they're right. But the scripture says that Jesus is always right. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Colossians 2, verse 3, that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures. Think about this. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all wrapped up in him. So, so if you need advice about your marriage, who should you go to? If, if you need advice about how to manage your finances, what to do with all the extra money you have, how to invest it, how to spend it, where, where should you go? If, if you're in a, you, you got a situation with, maybe with a neighbor, maybe with a coworker, maybe with a friend, maybe with somebody in your family, you know, and... and it, 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 there's just, there's angst and there's conflict. Where should you go? Should we call our buddy and say, hey, I got this situation, what do you think I ought to do? Should we go, to, go down to some psychologist and say, hey, what do you think I ought to do? Or should we go to the wonderful counselor in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? I dare say we should go to Jesus. Now, how would you do that? You open up the word. He's the living word. And so if you're struggling in your marriage, man, the best, best marriage advice in the world is found in this book. The best financial advice is found in this book. The best advice on how to deal with anger, how to deal with discipline problems with your kids or your grandkids, the best you can find is right here in the book. So what that means, we probably ought to be reading it, right? Regular, yeah. So he's wonderful counselor. Second characteristic, we've got to move on. Uh, not only is he wonderful counselor, but the scripture says that he is mighty a God. And so, I mean, one of the challenges, if you get perfect advice, it, just think about this. If you're struggling in your marriage, or, or maybe your friend's struggling in, your, in their marriage, and you're giving them some advice from the scriptures because your marriage is probably perfect anyway. But so you're trying to help somebody, in your marriage, and you say, well, you know, the, you know here's, here, the Bible says you ought to do this, and the Bible says you ought to do this and this. Man, that, that's hard. Sometimes it's hard. The Bible gives us financial advice. You go, man, that, you know, I, I don't know if I can give the first 10% to God. That's kind of, I mean, I can't make ends meet. You know, it's hard. Or, or I don't, you know, I don't know if I can, can this person that offended me, and it did me wrong. I don't really know if I can confront them. I would rather just stay here and stew about it and be miserable and stay mad at them. It's easy to do that. So, so it's hard to do that. 
You know, Jesus gives us great advice. Jesus gives us great guidance. But he doesn't really give us easy stuff. So Jesus reveals himself as the mighty God. Now, we know what God means, at least to a point. But that term mighty uh, just meant it is, you know, it is, it is from a root word which is commonly associated with warfare. So it has to do with strength and vitality of a successful war, warrior. And so it means powerful, strong, brave, and mighty. In, in fact, you, you can almost translate this part as God is warrior. And so think about this. When Jesus gives us, when Jesus gives us direction, when he gives us guidance and instruction, he is a mighty warrior ready and willing to give us the power to do what he's called us to do. Listen to what Jeremiah said, wrote about him. Jeremiah uh, 32, go to your right to the book of Jeremiah. Go to chapter 32 and, and look at verse, I had it in my notes of 16 and 17, but don't do that. Go to verse 17. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. See if I'm in the right place. Ah, here's what he says. He says, ah, Lord God. This is the prophet Jeremiah. Man, he said, listen, you talk about somebody in a mess. They don't call him the weeping prophet because life was easy. But listen to what he says. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to the children after them. Now look at this. O great and mighty God. God is a warrior. God gives us, I mean, think about this. When, when we stood before our spouse and we pledged to be troth, we talked about, I'm going to stay here uh, in sickness and in health. For richer and for poorer you know, for better or for worse. Now, we all signed up for the health and the richer and the better, right? I mean, is that what you signed up for? Can I get a witness? Yeah, we signed up for that. But we also signed up for the sickness. We also signed up for the poor, and we also signed up for the worse. And when we get in the worse, and we get in the poor, and we get in the sickness, then, then God says you still got to stay. You know, I'll get couples in my office, and, and when, that, when, when they come to me, most of the time, they're, they're in the poorer and in the worse. But that doesn't mean we quit, because we signed up for all of it. Because when you consult the Word of God, it says, hey, if you're in a marriage, you know what it says? Stay. It just says stay. How do I do that? Well, there's a mighty God who, 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 who that guides provides. He'll give you the power to do. He'll give me the power to do what he's called us to do. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. But notice third, also everlasting father. Um, Isaiah ascribes this, this to Jesus, the king. By the way, Isaiah didn't know his name was Jesus, but we know him as Jesus. And, and he, he describes him as king and as everlasting father. Now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that Jesus is the father in terms of the Trinity, what he's talking about is a, a king was looked upon as a father um, over the people. And they had a responsibility to love and to care for the people. And the idea is that as king, 
When Jesus sits on the throne of Israel, he is, he is going to care in love and, and provision for the people. That, that's why the Bible talks in the New Testament about Jesus as the good shepherd. Now, we don't understand a lot about the Bedouin shepherd and kind of, or at least some of us probably do, but in our culture, we don't see that a lot. But man, to the, to the Jewish mind, when, when the scripture talks about Jesus being the good shepherd, automatically they understood a couple of things. Uh, first of all, they understood that, that Jesus, that meant that Jesus was going to provide. Because what a shepherd would do is he would provide. I mean, read Psalm 23. He would lead them to greener pastures. He would lead them beside still waters because it was the role of the shepherd to provide. Uh, the, the other thing the shepherd would do is, is, is he would protect. He would protect. And so he would provide and protect. Now, as a father, those of you who are fathers, as a father of, of children, or for, for me as a father of daughter, I mean, there's a couple of things that, that, that I'm intentional about. Man, I'm going to provide to the best of my God-given ability. I, I'm going to give my, my girls everything they need. And, and, and probably a lot of what they want, but everything. They, I want to give them everything they need. I want to provide for them, and I want to protect them. I want to protect them. And as, as, as Father, what Jesus wants for you is, is to provide everything you need. And what he wants for you and for me is to protect us. Now, when he gives us that guidance out of the word, sometimes he gives us something we don't really want to hear. Anybody, has God ever told you something you didn't want to hear? Anybody? It's, yeah, three people. Good. <laughs> Y'all just aren't listening. Uh, have you ever, have you ever, as a father, have you ever told your kids something they didn't want to hear? Sure you have. Why? Because you want to protect them. And so Jesus, I mean, he wants to protect us. He's our everlasting father and, uh, and that's what he came for. Then last of all, look, look quickly, this last name. Uh, not only the everlasting father, but it says here he is the prince of peace. The word prince kind of gives us some insight. Uh, that, that's kind of indicative of his right, his judicial, I guess that's the right word, the judicial right to the throne. You know, the, the, the next in line to the throne is called the prince. Uh, is, it, uh, is it Prince William? That's one of, the, one of the guys in England, I think it's Prince William, but one of them's in line for the throne. He's in line for the throne. Well, as the prince of it, that gives Jesus judicial authority. But I love this word peace because we talk about this. Uh, I believe there's three arenas where God wants to provide peace. Let me just share those real quickly and then I got a kind of a, kind of a neat thing. God, first of all, God wants to give us peace with God. Romans, Romans 5 verse 1, uh, you don't need to turn there, but it says, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, I'll come back and talk about this, I think, but, but just think, of, think in terms of peace as the absence of war. Just think about peace as the absence of war. When, when you become justified in Jesus Christ, you are at peace with God. In other words, there's no longer war between you and God. Now, this is, a, this is an interesting message because we don't really want to hear this in our culture today. But if, if you're not a follower of Jesus... You are at enmity with God. In other words, there is a war, there is a conflict, a war between you and God. In fact, the Bible talks about this in Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 3. But we won't, we won't look at all that, but because of our sin, it says that we are by nature objects of wrath. 
And so for the man or woman that's without Christ, they are at war with God. And yet Jesus can, when you are justified by faith, you have peace. In other words, what that means is there is no longer, there is an absence of conflict and war between you and God. And so Jesus comes to provide peace between man and between God. But he also wants to provide peace between man and man. You know, and, and we won't get into that, but he also wants to, to bring peace to man. What God, God wants an absence of war between you and your husband or your wife or your kids or your grandkids or your neighbor or your friends or whatever. He wants an absence of that. So Jesus came to bring that. He's the Prince of Peace. He came to bring the absence of war in, in, in your own heart. I mean, this idea of, of peace, listen, what God wants, God wants to provide peace for us. Peace within ourselves. He, he doesn't want you and me in conflict and turmoil. But a lot, in fact, some of us are sitting here today, man, there's turmoil in your life because of a diagnosis that, that's, that's come up, because of the, a job loss, or because you're not accepted, or because there's conflict with somebody in your family, and there's this, this absence of, of peace in the presence of conflict, and yet Jesus came to set you free from that. But above all, he came to set us free from conflict between God and man. And you know, during the Christmas season, uh, it's a great celebrative time. I love it. You love it. Most of us love it. But man, there, there are people that are hurting. And some of you, you're facing your first holiday without your, the love of your life. And some of you are here and you're facing conflict in your family. Or you're here, you're here and you're facing facing you know, an illness or something, and, and Christmas is great, and it's joy to celebrate, but life's hard. And Jesus wants to be your counselor. And Jesus wants to bring you peace. And that, you know, that's not a message the world wants to hear at Christmas. Uh, and I know that's true. Uh, Thursday, I got an email from our local radio station. Said, "Hey, we would love for you to. We'll give you one minute. You can do a, a public service announcement. You can have a pastor you know, a spot as a pastor to tell us what Christmas means to you. And so, you're, this is absolutely surprising to you. But I summarized this sermon in one minute. <laughs> did I, Dan? Did I do it? One minute. One minute. Maybe eight seconds or something. And so I talked about how Jesus came for the hurting." And how he wants to, to heal the wounded and how he wants to forgive sins and how, you know, people need to give the control of their life to Christ. And so we, we edited that and recorded that and we sent it off to them and they sent back a message to Dan and said, hey, there's an echo in your announcement. We'd love for you to come down here and record it, but we'd really love for you to share something that's a little bit lighter for Christmas. And, 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 and I get that because Christmas is a celebration. I understand. But when you're hurting, you need Jesus. When you're hurting, you need a counselor. When you're hurting and wounded, when life's difficult, you need peace. And there is a king that can provide peace. S.M. Lockerbie in 1978 wrote a piece uh, he described the king. I won't share all, but he says, this king, Jesus was born a king. And here's what he says. 
He says, the Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. He says, and that's my king. Now, the question is, is he your king? He's the king of the universe. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. But is he your king? Because when he's your king, he's your wonderful counselor, your mighty God, your everlasting father, and he's your peace. Let's pray. Father, I, I would this morning that Jesus Christ would reign in my heart as king. And God, my prayer and my hope for every man, woman, boy, and girl sitting in the auditorium, that Jesus would reign in their heart as king. But if he's to be king, then that means we must surrender. We must bow our knee and acknowledge that he's ruler and Lord. And friend, I wonder this morning, have you bowed your knee? Have you bowed your heart and acknowledged Jesus as Lord? Have you done that? If not, would you today be willing to bow before Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you to be my king. I want you to be my Lord. Father, I pray in these moments there's a man, there's a woman, there's a person in the auditorium. They've never surrendered to Jesus as king. They've never bowed their heart. They've never said, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. Today I surrender. And God, I wonder if today they would come and give their life to Christ as Lord and as king. God, I pray that you'd have your will in every heart. And we'll give you the honor and glory for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand and, and we're going to sing a verse or two of this hymn that Dan's playing. I surrender all. If you've never given your life to Jesus, if, if you've never made him king, 